this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. We're still obviously recording remotely because we are still in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. No matter what people may may or may not think. You know, yes. the irony, and I said this probably in March, the irony is that if the stay-at-home stuff and everything works, everybody's going to say, well, that was a fucking waste of time. I know. And now people are saying it. You know? I know they are. And, and um, now that we're gonna get people are gonna get sick, whatever. Mm-hmm. I just wrote an article for my real job where I talked to people in all different departments at one of the bigger hospitals here in Maine about how they prepared for it. And pretty much all of them said that that, you know, we Maine did such a great job, but now they're they're very concerned about people's reactions and yeah. people getting tired of it. Yeah, I can tell you, uh, I worked today and probably only about half the people had masks on that came in shopping. So yeah. I will only go into places that I feel like are really taking it seriously. And so right now, it's the grocery store, the, the chain Hannaford, where they're really... When I went grocery shopping after doing, like, Hannaford to go curbside a couple times and not being very satisfied with what I ended up getting, I decided to finally go into the store again for the first time probably in a month, and every single person was wearing a mask. Yes, they're very good. Yep. I mean, not the employees, but the, I mean, the employees oh. were, but I'm talking about the the customers, Everyone wears a mask at the grocery store. I don't know why they don't do it. They don't you know. at your place. But also I went to a um a greenhouse place and I was very impressed with not only, you know, them counting and everything, but also the in inside it's a very big place inside the traffic patterns and stuff. Mm-hmm. But of course there are people with masks who had them around their neck, yes. and, and they're coming at you in the aisle and stuff, and I feel like saying, what is the fucking mask doing around your neck? I know. If you're not if you're not wearing it right now, then when are you wearing it? Because right now is when you really should be. Yes, and of course, exactly. our, our state has a rule that is by the honor system, so nobody is doing it where people from out of state who flock here at this time of year are supposed to quarantine for 14 days, and they're obviously not doing it. They're not. And they're just bringing their COVID-soaked cars into, what, Maine, and um, it's disheartening. Now you're turning off all of our our listeners. I know that our listeners are not the ones who are doing that. It's other people. So anyway, we're both tired, and uh, we need to... So I have an update. Okay. Uh, oh, well, before we uh, get to it, there's one thing I want to say that's going to show kind of, I guess, how lame and square I am. But I just, the past couple days, caught on to the, I don't know if you want to call it a meme or a saying or whatever, the whole Karen thing. You Okay. Middle you of, yes. Yeah. I, no, I didn't. Uh, maybe I heard okay. it and just didn't notice. But, you know, you know what it is. Maybe yes. there are listeners. Uh, pretty much know. everybody knows what it is. But, yes, go on. Okay. But maybe there are some people, I'm actually a fairly well-read, aware person, but maybe I, I'm i just not, like, listening to snarky shit, okay? So maybe there's some other people out there who, it's entitled middle-aged white women who who do clueless things because they, they feel so entitled, and it's like, okay, Karen, or whatever, Karen, 
But my thing is, okay, so what do you call a guy like that? Someone Hello? said they call him Chad. Well, it, or it, Brad. It, right, but that's not something everybody knows, is it? You're just guessing at no. it. You're speculating. So, well, I I don't have so, a name for guys because they're all like that. Well, so. no, but my point Sorry. about this thing was going to be, I understand those type of people exist, those type of women. I see them. I understand it. I find them annoying, too. But I feel like it's basically just more misogyny because, you know, like a woman who bitches at somebody because they want her to wear a mask is, okay, Karen, you know, a guy breaks somebody's fucking arm because they want him to wear a mask and there's no name for him. So yes, I, I understand. So anyway, on that note, I, okay. I just needed to get that out of my system. Okay. And you know how I am. I have to get it out. But my update is from episode 55, Nancy Crampton Brophy, How to Murder Your Husband, she wrote. And for those of you who don't remember, she was the self-published Portland, Oregon romance writer who's been in jail awaiting trial on charges. She murdered her husband. Chef Daniel Brophy. Last month, she sought release because of COVID-19, which resulted in a two-day hearing, April 27th through April 29th, in Multnomah County Superior Court. So, listeners, you may hear a cat purring really loud. Oh, she's a good girl. Sounds kind of like a motorcycle revving up. But her lawyers argued in their motion for the hearing that her age, she's 70, and her her diabetic history spelled her imminent death. And that's in mm. quotes. If she remained in the... Did you have something to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what caused her husband's imminent death, don't you? Yes. Her shooting him. Allegedly. 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 If she remained in the Multnomah County Detention Center, and this is according to the Oregonian, at the end of it... <laughs> that purring is so fucking loud. I can't hear I, it. Well... I this mean, is, I can, but I have earphones. It's your so. microphone that's picking up. That's fine. At, at the end of April, she had a habeas corpus hearing, which is where attorneys can argue that a person is being unlawfully or dangerously detained. And that's a simple version, but it's really all you guys need to know um, for the purpose of this update. Anyway, her attorneys, Lisa Maxfield and Kristen Weinmiller, Said in their filing, charged that Multnomah County Sheriff Mike Reese, the jails he oversees, create a medically dangerous environment and threaten the defendant's life. And there was an earlier April 7th article about this, and this is from that article. Ms. Crampton Brophy's age and poor health, combined with the lack of medically necessary sanitation and separation at the jail, expose her to an unreasonable, unacceptably high risk of fatal infection if the jail becomes an incubator for the coronavirus, Mm. as health experts predict it will be, according to court records. Now, remember, this was April 7th. Mm -hmm. The Oregonian says, according to court records, I assume that's the filing from the lawyers for the habeas corpus hearing. Once the defendant is attacked by the virus, medical staff will have virtually no means to save her. The battle will be waged between the virus and her 70-year-old diabetic immune system. <laughs> Steps must be taken now immediately to avoid exposing her to the virus. The April 7th article said no staff or inmates at the jail had COVID, but I checked today. We're recording this on May 24th, Bob Dylan's birthday. And they didn't say, unlike Maine, they don't apparently list anywhere how many inmates have tested positive, but they've let out about 30% of the jail's population Mm. because of the coronavirus. They let out people, according to the crime they committed or alleged to have committed, 
their criminal history, whether they're likely to reoffend. It doesn't say, but I don't think Nancy was one of the people let out. She certainly wasn't after this hearing. Before she made the request, the jail staff rejected her request to create social distancing at the jail. She wanted things like having protein shakes and medication delivered to her cell. Her lawyer said she fears mingling with inmates in the cafeteria line and is worried about contracting COVID-19 from the jail's food workers who travel in and out of the facility each day. And I have to say, I don't fucking blame her. She's in jail, though. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, let's not even... Her only means, quote, this is quote, her only means to minimize trips outside her cell other than starvation, that's from her lawyers, has been to purchase food through the jail canteen service. However, the healthiest food available through the jail canteen, orange juice, makes her diabetic condition worse. Mm-hmm. Her lawyers propose she stay in a guest house that belongs to, quote, longtime Oregon residents, unquote, in the Portland area. Court records do not identify these residents or the location of their guest house. Uh, I wonder if it's our sister and her boyfriend. Dad. Yes. Why can't they just give her a friggin' ankle bracelet and let her out? Unless I'm she gets getting, married again. Okay, I'm go ahead. getting to that. Okay, she I'm sorry. She would have GPS monitoring and not be allowed to leave the home. And I just want to point out to people that people may not be aware, but when you do have GPS monitoring, it's not like somebody's watching every second where you're going. In a lot of cases, what happens is later they download it to see where you went mm-hmm. and stuff. Yep. So it's not like some alarm goes off if, you know, if you go outside the house or something. Food and groceries will be brought to her. It sounds just like social distancing to me. Only medical professionals or Crampton Brophy's attorneys would be allowed to visit. Multnomah County's prosecutors rejected the proposal. This was before the hearing. And according to the Oregonian, saying, quote, self-containment in an undeclosed location supervised by undeclosed individuals. And, hey, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, where was I now? Okay. Um, I'll start with the prosecutors, if I can ever get through this fucking thing. Multnomah County prosecutors rejected the proposal um, when it was made before the hearing outright, I assume that's why they're having the hearing, but the story never said. Quote, self-confinement in an undisclosed location supervised by undisclosed individuals while wearing a passive GPS monitor is not a program conducted by the Department of Corrections and is clearly not a suitable alternative to being confined in jail, wrote Sean Overstreet, a deputy district attorney. Because God knows the woman's been in jail for a year and a half or whatever now, you know. Now to refresh your memory about the case, and this was part of the hearing, it was a two-day hearing, though I'm not sure why, unless the prosecution had to lay out why she couldn't be let out. And if I were the editor of the Oregonian reporter who wrote the article, I would have said, put a fucking graph in about why this hearing was taking place and why the no shit. all the evidence, I mean, right? it's a, that's a long he- time for a hearing like that. I know, but you'll see what, why, because I'm, I'm not done yet. Okay. But, but, but what I'm saying is, because now they go through all the evidence, I'm not sure why that was necessary in a hearing to see if she could be let out because of COVID-19. So it would have been nice if the story had said why, and you can see why I was such a popular boss when I was a newspaper editor. Mm-hmm. Because people don't like being fucking told to put stuff in stories. Anyway, but I will say, when we did our episode on this in October 2018, they had sealed the affidavit. 
Mm-hmm. And we didn't know why she had been arrested. All there was was the blog post she had done about how to murder your husband a few years before. Then when we did an update a year ago, they had let a little bit out. So prosecutors, according to the Oregonian, quote, cast the author as a woman whose dreams of adventure and comfortable retirement ran up against financial hardship. She can fucking join the club. And a, a husband content with leading a more simple life. She began taking out life insurance policies on her husband, Mm -hmm. prosecutors said, and she bought multiple firearms and related gun parts. Then she began plotting. That's um, in the Oregonian story. Ms. Brophy, throughout this, had attempted to plan the perfect crime and thought she could get away with it, said Deputy D.A. Overstreet. Portland Police Detective Anthony Merrill testified, and he was the only one to testify in the hearing, so I guess he talked for two days, testified <laughs> Daniel Brophy went to the culinary school on June 2nd, 2018, and was prepping in a kitchen when someone shot him through the back and chest with a 9mm handgun. Both bullets pierced his heart. Students found him unconscious when they got there a little while later and called 911. The Oregonian writes, quote, The early morning shooting baffled the man's family, students, and co-workers. Police found no apparent signs of struggle in the kitchen. The assailant never touched the chef's keys, wallet, or phone. He had no enemies, according to the police. And, you know, if you're going to kill your spouse, fucking take the keys, the wallet, and the phone, and then just throw them in a dumpster somewhere so it looks like a robbery. I mean, duh. But anyway, investigators soon zeroed in on Crampton Brophy, who appeared at the scene on the morning of the shooting, telling police a friend had called her after seeing a news story about an incident at the culinary school. Hmm. According to a recorded interview that day with police, she said she had been in bed when her husband left for work and had stayed at home. Yet, investigators say they found surveillance video that shows Crampton Brophy driving her Toyota minivan near the culinary school in the moments before and after the Mm. shooting. Some of that footage, as well as the police interview, was played in the courtroom. And I just want to say, too... I'm not going to go into all the details of her how to murder your husband blog, but she goes in a lot of detail about how you need to fool the police. And to me, I mean, being concerned about surveillance cameras and stuff should be like, that's like murder your husband 101. Anyway. (laughs) They're like on every building now. I know. I mean, they're everywhere. It's like we're England or something. Crampton Brophy had also told police in the interview about a 9mm handgun she had bought the previous February at a Portland gun show, which she later turned over to detectives. Ballistics testing couldn't tie that weapon to the murder, according to Merrill. And this is something I had in the update last year, but I'm going to say go over it anyway because I find it interesting. But investigators would later discover she owned other weapons police and prosecutors said. One was a build-it-yourself 9mm that she bought on Christmas Eve 2017. And I think the last update I did, she, like, replaced the the barrel and the Mm -hmm. um, slide in the barrel and one gun with the other, which was pretty clever. Yeah, she was clever about that, but yet she doesn't think that there might be surveillance. Mm -hmm. Less than a week after her gun show purchase, she also bought the slide and barrel for another 9mm gun on eBay. Police and prosecutors said they believe she swapped the parts, like mm. I just said, to carry out and later cover up the murder. And the slide and barrel have never been found that were used to shoot him. Merrill, the detective, said at the hearing the couple's financial records showed that they had fallen behind on mortgage payments, had little in retirement savings, and struggled to stay out of debt. 
That she, sounds just like me. It's a problem. I know. She was the beneficiary on six life insurance policies taken mm. out on her husband, totaling about eight hundred grand. An additional accident insurance policy would pay her up to four hundred and forty thousand if her husband died at work. <laughs> oh, okay. Selling the couple's house in Beaverton would fetch another six-figure sum, and that all adds up to about a cool one point five million dollars. Mm-hmm. And you may not remember, but in her "How to Murder Your Husband" tongue-in-cheek, and um, that's in quotes. You notice I don't say air quotes; I just say. <laughs> blog post and I and I put it in quotes because we discussed extensively what a bad piece of writing it was and it was hard to tell it was yes. she, from 2011 she lists financial as the top reason to kill your husband and she but she also points out the police aren't stupid so you have to be very clever about how you do it and I always got the feeling she thought she was so clever about the whole slide and barrel thing I mean if she did it right that she didn't think of the obvious stuff. Like the Toyota minivan caught by surveillance. I know. Why wouldn't you rent a car? Well, maybe you not well, rent. Well, then they but... have the rental. But find That's some way true. to get in and out. Like park a few blocks away. Disguise yourself. I mean, not so it's an obvious disguise. But do something that where you won't. It won't be obvious. It's you. And then do it. And also steal the fucking wallet. You know. I but, know. Um, but um, she also lists gun as the top weapon to use. Just saying. Mm, interesting. Um, her lawyer said the prosecution lacked any definitive proof that she was behind her husband's killing. And I guess that would be true. I mean, it's pretty, it's circumstantial. She was at the scene. She had all these guns, stuff she, but not anything that ties it to the gun that killed him. There was all the life insurance But, you know, this is from the Oregonian. Defense attorney Lisa Maxfield emphasized that the investigators never recovered the gun used to shoot Brophy and couldn't show that his wife even bought the types of bullets used in the crime. Maxfield also pressed Merrill, the detective, to detail the attempts made by police to interview other people living or working near the culinary school. Quote, the state basically has no murder weapon, she said. What they have is a van that matches the description of Mrs of Ms. Brophy's van. And I'd like to know more about that. Like, is it does it just match the description or is there some telling thing like a plate number? Or, or could they see, you know, right, right. a woman driving or something? Right. Yeah, me too. I wonder if that's on, I should have looked to see if that was on YouTube. But anyway, Maxfield tried to poke additional holes in the prosecution's case. And this is quoting the Oregonian story, by the way, by revealing how Crampton Brophy had also taken out life insurance policies in her own name as well and suggesting that the defendant was unaware of the accident insurance policy that, yeah. she, that her husband had through the culinary school. And as we mentioned in our episode 55, she had worked in the insurance business for quite a while, and people who work in the insurance business tend to know a lot about insurance. And usually, at least, and this is, I know, anecdotal, but like people I know who are in a couple, where one person in the couple works in insurance, they're, like, in charge of all the family's insurance, and they know mm-hmm. everything about Yeah, that would make sense. You know, and I'm not saying she did, but I've known several o- over the years people where one person of the couple was in the insurance business, and it was always like that. People in the insurance business are wicked into insurance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they are. In my experience. In my experience. I'm just saying. In my experience. 
<laughs> the defense also provided statements from friends and family during the investigation. So I, and I'm sorry, this is from the Oregonian, so I assume what the reporter means is the statements were made during the investigation yes. friends and family that depicted a couple not prone to conflict and submitted mm. racy text messages that suggested Ooh. they remain physically intimate up Gross. until Brophy's deaths. But um, the judge, in the end, wasn't enough to let her out because of the COVID. I do want to say, too, and I think we brought this up in our episode 55, that the image you give as a couple to the outside world does not necessarily reflect what's going on mm-hmm. in the confines of your house. Racy text messages mean nothing. Ugh. And some of that could have been part of her clever setup. I know. To make her not look like, uh, you know, a murderer. So mm. that's my update. I thought I had an update on the Hurt family that our sister Liz did. And I forgot to look up what episode. But, um, because People Magazine had something. No, it was the Turpin, wasn't it? Oh, that's why. People had an update on the Turpin. Uh, I looked up the wrong family with matching shirts. Because I, mm. I just glanced at the text you had sent me. Well, I'll do them next time. It wasn't much. I mean, it was basically well, but, just... Well, what what yeah. I was going to say about the Hart family is people does have... They did, in March, put up a timeline slideshow kind of thing with all Ooh. the coverage of the Hart family. Maybe they've done that for the Turpins, too. But I'll look up the, whatever's going on with the Turpins and do an update next time. Okay. Well, thank you for that update. I probably should have some, but I don't. Well, it's all right. Okay. COVID. I know. It's true. Yeah. One thing I want to say about COVID that I noticed on my way to work is that people are driving fucking slow. I don't know what it is, but the people who are out driving are maybe, going like 15 miles an hour. I know. I've noticed that too. Maybe they're afraid it's going to attack them. Like, like I've read newspaper stories about how a lot of people are getting speeding tickets because there's no traffic, but <laughs> but there is traffic where we live. A lot of it is because because we have a much smaller population. A lot of people work in retail. There is a lot of traffic, and everybody's driving like their car has the virus. I don't understand. Anyways. Yeah, I don't even know what you're doing, so I'm very I excited. Know. And then when you said mom had recommended it, it intrigued me further. I had something else in mind for this episode, but I'm reading a book for research and I didn't finish it. So I'm not <laughs> doing that now. It's hard. Um, and I was telling mom about my issue the other night and she recommended this crime to me. Ooh. And I was, I was surprised when I looked on the internet, it popped up right away and I found a lot of stuff online about it Ooh. and it took place in our birthplace of Elmira, New York. And mom and dad were both in high school when this happened. Dad did not know the people at all. Mom knew of them. She wasn't directly acquainted with them. And as dad told me, people from the north side didn't really hang out with people from the south side. And I said, la-di-da. What? What? Like, so people with, like, giant Irish families were somehow better than other people? Well, mom and him, mom and dad, I believe, lived on the south so side. An, I mean, north no, side. So the north side's the part on one side of the river, and the south side's on the I'm other I'm assuming, part. I don't know. Yes, because I'm just remembering now, because that's where south side high school is on the other side of the river. Yes. Where our cousins lived over there. Yes. The Sweeney's. I got my information from court documents. Ooh. 
Um, and luckily, the state of New York puts a lot of stuff online. Also, LegalBeagle.com had court stuff. I found articles by the Elmira Star Gazette and the Elmira New York, obviously, Star Gazette and Advertiser. Mostly the Advertiser because it was on Newspapers.com. There's another one. The Star Gazette ones, a lot of them were on another one that won't let you see, look at it for and free. And can we just say, too, that the Star Gazette and the Advertiser, briefly, our dad worked for, and our yes, grandfather worked, was an editor yes. at the Star Gazette. But dad didn't know any of the reporters I asked him on any of these stories. They were a bit before his time. So let me get started and you will see what it's about. I'm I'm excited. Early in the morning on May 24th, 1953, Edith and Ray Horton were asleep in the Almira or Southport, as some people called it Southport. And there is a town of Southport, but I believe that this was in Elmira. But they, there was the dad said they called that area Southport. And also, it's May 24th today. Oh my God, it is. I didn't even think of that. It is. Wow. wow. Ooh. Edith awoke to her husband yelling at her to turn on the light. He had a knife in his back. Edith thought he was just dreaming and tried to calm him down. When that didn't work, she finally turned the light on. <laughs> I know. It's like... Ray, well, I mean, if you know, if your husband's like that, you would think he was having a bad dream, probably. Or a heart attack. Ray was trying to raise himself and had his right arm behind his back trying to grab at something. Edith noticed that he had blood on his pajamas and a knife was on the bed. She called the operator to get an ambulance and the sheriff. An hour later, Ray was dead. The knife had pierced Ray's liver and he died from internal bleeding. Later that morning, in Geneva, New York, 60 miles north, 18-year-old Norman Horton was called to the phone from his dorm room at Hobart College and told his father was dead. He wasn't told the cause. And I couldn't find out who called him. I don't think it was his mother. I think it was just a family friend or someone that called him. He got a ride back to Southport with friends of the family. Everyone assumed, and in the car, assumed that Ray had died of natural causes and speculated it was a heart attack. Norman told his fellow travelers this was surprising because his dad didn't have a heart condition that he knew of. And by the way, Ray was 50. I'm not sure how old Edith was. It doesn't, I couldn't find that anywhere. Norman was coming to the end of his freshman year at Hobart. He was a talented piano player and a good-looking boy. He and his father had a difficult relationship, though. Ray wanted his son, his only child, to be athletic and macho. Unfortunately, Norman was not interested in sports and was gay, although he was by no means out. In fact, he dated a lot of girls, including one of our mom's cousins. Oh. Unfortunately, she died last year, so I can't get the scoop was on that, her from her. Was that Mary Pia? Yes. I can't I can't get the scoop from her but about what he was she like. Been great. It could not have been easy to be a gay teen in the nineteen fifties, upstate New York, especially when you have a father who did not want a quote sissy for a son. Uh-huh. Norman was not having a good freshman year. He hadn't been accepted into a fraternity like he wanted to. He had a hard time making friends. His grades had been pretty good in high school, but by junior year were deteriorating. Still, his grades had been good enough for him to get into Hobart. Once in college, though, he didn't keep up with his work. By the end of the year, he was hopelessly behind in his classes and finals were coming up. He was suffering from stomach aches from the stress. Ray made no secret of the scorn he felt for Norman and was constantly on his back about how he didn't measure up. Norman said of this time, quote, I was so far behind in my work and I had just become slack and put things off. Well, I just wasn't doing what I should do. And so I kept thinking, how am I going to get out of it? 
Of course, all this time, this hate and feeling, well, whose fault is it anyway that I'm here, kept building up and I realized it was my father's fault. I think maybe it was a temper tantrum, that feeling of hate and the feeling of resentment and jealousy and everything else. And I was conscious of what I was doing. Well, I was in bed and I couldn't sleep. I was so uncomfortable, I took the beer mug on my desk and threw it against the wall. Well, I guess it just let out emotion that I had built up inside me. And I went over to my closet and took the glasses out and started throwing them against the wall. And I really think I was throwing them at my father cause, because it was his fault. Mm -hmm. end quote <laughs> and i'm like why does he have a, why does he have all these glasses in his closet like what the hell i knew like people a, in college bar? with a lot of beer glasses and stuff and did it, this is a dumb trivial question but did it say what his major was no it did not mom said he was a talented pianist mm -hmm. i don't know what his major was though but i i there's so much suspense now i'm wondering <laughs> what, what what could have happened Next. <laughs> in the days that followed his father's death, Norman was questioned several times by the district attorney's office and the New York State Police. He denied knowing anything about his father's death. He said he'd been at school when it happened, and he had been seen at Hobart the night before, as late as 6.30 p.m. He'd also been seen the following morning about 7. He didn't have a car, and at the time, the police had no way to tie him to the crime. And also, you know, it's what, like a two-lane road? Mm -hmm. between yeah. Elmira and Geneva. You know, it's not like you, you, you're just going to hop on the highway. and. You know. I know. In June, Norman and his mother decided he would voluntarily admit himself to the state hospital in Binghamton. According to a later court filing, he and his mother decided that he should go to the mental hospital and have sodium pentothal or sodium... Sodium pentothal is the trade name. It's also called sodium theapentyl, I think. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds about right. I heard that's a cure for COVID-19. <laughs> administered. He's going to have that administered so he could prove that he had nothing to do with his father's mm. death. Bad move. Yes. As I said, sodium pentothal is the trade name of the drug that used to be called truth serum, or people still call it that. They used to use it in interrogations a lot. They don't really use it anymore. It's still used as a general anesthetic, but not as a truth serum. Except for the CIA has used it on, on Al-Qaeda members because they like to just use anything. I don't think it's made as much anymore because it was one of the drugs used for lethal injections. So the company that was making most of it was in Italy, I think, and they... They stopped oh. making it to prevent it from being used that way. But they used to use it. They like to use it on pregnant women because it didn't affect the fetus. It's a very short-term drug, wow, I guess. you know I don't so know. much about it. I looked it up, oh. obviously. While Norman was in the hospital, he met a fellow patient named Matthias Barrows from Endicott, New York, which is just outside Binghamton. Matthias was a voluntary patient. When asked why he'd admitted himself to the hospital, he said, Why, you see, sir, this is obviously a testimony. I'm on parole, and I had a big argument with my parole officer over family difficulties. Well, after I got finished, I just about threw him out of the house. I started getting nervous, so I called him on the phone to apologize, and he told me the best way to apologize would be to go up to the state hospital and get an examination. So I went to the state hospital, and they asked me to sign in voluntarily, and I did. Mm. I know, I thought that was weird. But then it kind of makes sense later, as you'll see. Okay. This is what Matthias said about meeting Norman on June 7th, 1953, his first day there. He was playing chess with another fellow in the institution. I sat down to watch them. This one fellow looked at me and he says, Why are you here? I said, I've been nervous. 
This is what Matthias said about meeting Norman on June 7th, his first day there. Quote, he was playing chess with another fellow in the institution. I sat down to watch them. And I'm trying to say exactly the words he says. So he says okay. sat instead of sit. Right. This one fellow looked at me and he says, why are you here? And I said, I've been nervous. And yeah. I, in turn, asked him why he was there. And he told me he had a nervous breakdown. Then I asked Norman why he was there. And he told me he was to prove he was sane. I said, most of them are up here to prove they cr they're crazy. How come you're up here to prove you're sane? <laughs> and then he told me that his father had been murdered in Elmira. He was suspected and come up to prove he knew nothing about it. Well, I didn't say too much after that, but I can't remember the dates now or the times. But it was later in the week or the beginning of the next week. I was transferred downstairs. I was eating dinner one day and Norman came over and sat next to me. He says, Matt, he squeezed my hand. He says, I'm coming downstairs tomorrow or this afternoon. And I said, that's good. A few minutes later, the doctor came in and Norman asked him how everything came out. He had sodium pentothal the truth serum, a little while before. And the doctor told him, he says, Norman, you've got nothing to worry about. Everything is negative, and we don't think you had anything to do with it. Hmm. Well, that afternoon, Norman came down and said, well, because he knew I was on parole, I guess he figured I knew just about everything. So we started having conversations. Oh, what could you get for manslaughter? Well, it was quite a while after that. I can't remember the exact date. But we was down in the cellar playing pool. And Norman came over and he says he wanted to talk. So I stopped playing pool and we sat down. And this is what he, when he told me the story about his father. Then now I'm me again. What Norman told <laughs> what Norman told Matthias was that he had killed his father. There was later some dispute as to whether Matthias was a plant from the DA's office who was was the mental hospital version of a jailhouse snitcher. If he was truly someone who Norman actually confessed to. His reason for being in the mental hospital is weird. And there was a later court filing where the defense attorney was questioning him about actually why, you know, why did your parole officer tell you to go to the right. uh, hospital? Did someone tell you that you would be off parole? And he did end up, his parole did end up getting caught after he testified. Yeah. So. And his story did seem weird. And it's like, okay, is he just someone who can't explain things well? In any case, um, after Matthias reported what Norman had told him, Norman wrote a 56-page statement about the circumstances surrounding his father's murder and he confessed to the crime and i'm going i'm gonna read matthias's version of what so, norman told him so oh. can i just ask a question yeah so, sure so so all that stuff from matthias that's in like a court document yes it and is they, yes. and they wrote it like in his i don't want to say dialect because yes but they whoever the quote yes <laughs> that's funny Whoever the court reporter was took down exactly like what he bad said. bad fiction, badly written fiction. I know. Well, this is his version of what Norman told him, and the reason I'm going to tell it is because I liked the way he told yeah, it. Yeah. According to Matthias, quote, he told me it all started on Mother's Day in May, and his mother and father come up to see him. He was especially kind to his father that day, and he told me that it was because if anyone should happen to see them together, they'd say he thought quite a bit of his father. Well, from May 10th or whatever the date was there on Mother's Day until the time he told me he actually committed the murder. He said he had been thinking about it, planning it, and so forth. He told me that he went to a five and dime store in or around the college town and he didn't want to buy the knife. He thought maybe if he bought the knife and he used it, somebody would remember it. So he stole the knife. He went to a hotel. I don't know the name of the hotel or the time. And he picked up some fellow to give him a ride. Well, this fellow took him to Walmyra. Norma told him to wait for him and see if he was all right and he could stay all night with him. 
Somehow Norman got through the backyard over to his house, and as he got to the back, he noticed he lost his knife. So he turned around and traced his steps to see if he could find the knife, and he went back to the car. That much I forgot. I don't know how he got rid of the fellow that was in the car. From that point on, he told me he went back to the house. He found a hammer somewhere around the house and went through the French doors on the side or in the back and waited for quite a while for a train. He said he lived near the tracks. He figured he'd wait until a train went by and the train would make enough noise so his parents wouldn't hear the glass. He hit the glass and didn't break it. He hit it again. He broke open the door, tried to open it, and it wouldn't open. He reached down inside and found a nail. He said he pulled the nail out with a hammer. I forgot whether he threw the hammer away then or later. He told me he threw a hammer in the creek which was near his house, went up to the house and sat down on the couch for a length of time. A while later, he told me he went into the kitchen, and in the kitchen he took a mahogany-handled, sturdy-bladed knife back in the parlor and sat down. When he thought he'd waited long enough, he went up he went to the stairs. He told me the stairs were carpeted all the way to his parents' door. He said it took him about 10 minutes each time he took a step because he was afraid his parents might be awake. He got near the top of the stairs, stopped, listened to see if he could hear their breathing. He then walked to his parents' door, went in, told me he stabbed his father and went back to the door. As he got to the door, he heard his father say, honey, there's a knife in my back. <laughs> And Norman said he ran downstairs and out of the house. He ran up the highway over a bridge, and there was some young fellow delivering papers, so he hid by a gas station until he passed, and he continued up the highway and inside the road for a few miles. Then he hitchhiked a ride. I forget which ride it was, but he had two rides, as I remember, one from somebody in an Air Force base and one from somebody who lives in a college town, which led him off several blocks from the college itself. He then told me he went to his room, cleaned up, and went down to the cafeteria to eat. The cafeteria doesn't open until 8.30, and it was 8 o'clock at the time. Some student remarked to him that the cafeteria wouldn't open for another half hour, so Norman went upstairs. A while later, I forget how long, a telephone call came from a friend of his. Norman told me he figured just about who it was when he called his friend's name. I, that doesn't even make sense to me. His friend called Norman and asked him to come to his room. Norman went back to his friend's room, sat down, and asked him what was wrong. His friend said to Norman, Mr. Horton is dead. Norman told me he did the best he could and to look real shocked. Then the police told him his friend would be up that afternoon to pick him up, and you know the story from there on. That's, so a, that's, lot of, that's a lot of details. He had lots of details. According to Norman's statement, which he wrote on June, and this is me again, which he wrote on June 27th, he got to his parents' house at about 10.30 on the night of May, Saturday, May 23rd. He went to the garage and found a hammer and gloves. He said he needed the gloves because, quote, I knew they would be looking for fingerprints. He waited outside and watched until his parents' bedroom lights went out. Norman knew the train would be coming by and the whistle would hide any noise he would make breaking into the house. The French doors had an outside door and an inner door. He forced open the outside door and propped it open with a big white stone. He used the hammer to break out a lower pane of one of the inside doors and reached in through the broken pane to unlatch the door. There was a couch block in the door and he had to push it out of the way to get in. Once he was inside, he, quote, just sat and thought, end quote, in the living room for about a half an hour. And the kitchen was a set of knives in a box. He went to the kitchen and took out one of the knives. He quietly mounted the stairs and entered his parents' room. He said he was, quote, shaking, probably from fear. He said, I just kept telling myself, you have got to do it. It's the only way out. It isn't right, but it's just the circumstances that led me there, and there's no way out. And I really did think about it. He paused again, as he said in his statement, 
I wanted to bring it down, but my body wouldn't let me. I mean, I just didn't have the willpower, or I don't know what you would call it, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. By this time, I was just scared to death. I mean, I just didn't know what to do. I mean, I was scared. Well, there was just no way out, so I tried again, and I took the knife, and I just put it in my father's back, and the feelings were just going on. After plunging the knife into his father's back, he quickly left his parents' bedroom. And this is where I think Matthias was either embellishing or Norman was when he told Matthias what happened because he couldn't have heard his father say anything because in Norman's statement he says he went back to the kitchen put the knife box away then he went into the dining room put the card table back in its correct spot he went back out the French doors took the hammer and put his shoes back on before he took off so if he had time to do all that stuff his father hadn't woken up and alerted his mother or, yet or the cops Fed Matthias. Yes, there's Matthias said the white like, stone. In the mahogany handled sturdy knife. I know. You I know. know. Well, there was um, in one of the appeals, the cross-examination asked, who did you talk to before? You know, did you talk to the DA before your testimony and all this stuff? And he's like, well, just to refresh my memory. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Norman says he threw the gloves into the field and the hammer in a creek as he hitchhiked back to school. And just to clarify, hitchhiking was very common for young men back in the 1950s. Right. And it wouldn't and, have stood out to anyone that a young man had his thumb stuck right. out. Right. In fact, I was going to say, Dad went to Holy Cross, yeah. Worcester Mass, and used to hitchhike. That's how he used to get to college. Yeah, it was fact, when, accepted. When we were little kids, when somewhere during his college career, and he went from 54 to 58 when he was in college, they built 90, Interstate 90, and he told the story of he had gone up, and the way you got to it from Elmira was to go up like Route 14 to Geneva. And he went up, and he was supposed to meet a buddy there, and he got a ride before his buddy showed up. So he had a crayon in his pocket and wrote on a light stanchion, you know, I got a ride, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And when we were little kids, he showed us where that was, and you could still see oh, some of the outlines God. of what he had written on there. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Hey, that's the same way that uh, Norman went yeah. to Geneva. Well, there's that's the only way to get from Elmira yeah. to Geneva, up along Seneca Lake. Yes. The July 10th, 1953 edition of the Elmira Advertiser reported that the grand jury had returned an indictment against Norman Horton. The story also said his lawyer and the Horton family lawyer, Judson Hoover and Charles Swan, went to the state hospital to meet with Norman and advise him, and to also meet with psychiatrists there. The article reminded the reader that there would be an automatic not guilty plea at the arraignment because a murder charge either demanded a death penalty or acquittal back in the 50s. That's how wow. it was. The following January, when Norman went to trial, his lawyer tried an insanity defense. But as we know, the legal definition of insanity isn't the same as the medical definition. And Norman had been examined by at least two psychiatrists. They had a lot of different diagnoses from narcissism to schizophrenia to the saying he was delusional. And each side had their experts. But the jury ended up believing that Norman knew right from wrong when he killed his father. Someone else testified that during visiting hours before the funeral, Norman made some comment when Norman led this person in. He made some comment about the flowers and then went over to the piano and started playing. And he was acting really like nonchalant. Others said he was acting flippant at the funeral and his manner was inappropriate, which they used both ways to say he didn't care. And then the defense used it to say he was nutty 
I think that he just was an 18-year-old kid who had killed his father. And Matthias, his buddy from the state hospital, he um, also testified at his trial. This is what he said. Well, it wasn't long after Norman told me about this crime that he come to me and told me that he had been planning and thinking about killing his mother, making it look like a suicide, therefore telling the police that the mother had killed Mr. Horton. And she told Norman that she she killed herself because she killed her husband. And that would leave him completely out of it. And again, I don't know how true that is. You know, to the jury, it didn't make him look good. And the other thing, too, is people say all sorts of shit. You know? I know. And, and I know. you know, if we ever get Matt back, we're going to have to ask him about, <laughs> he- <laughs> about hearsay and stuff. Because... You know, that yeah. seemed like that whole thing was, but yeah. but part of it was he confessed to this guy, and then that guy reported it, right. and then he did actually write this fifty some page yeah. statement, which I wish I could have read. After a three week long trial, Norman Horton was convicted of murder and sentenced to the electric chair. Oh. In December of nineteen fifty four. The Supreme Court upheld the conviction in a six-to-one decision. The dissent by Judge John Van Voorhees questioned the legal definition of insanity and whether Norman really was able to comprehend his actions at the time of the murder. On January 12, 1955, New York Governor Avril Harriman commuted his sentence to life in prison. It was a week before Norman was scheduled to die. According to an article in the Elmira Advertiser, it was Judge Van Voorhees' dissent that helped influence Governor Harriman's decision. There had been a clemency hearing the day before, and the governor's council had met with Norman prior to the hearing. Governor Harriman, in his decision, said that Norman, quote, was not one in full command of his faculties and in possession of the responsibility and restraint that results in normal conduct. Under all the circumstances, I am constrained to commute Norman Lee Horton's sentence to life imprisonment. The paper also reported that Norman's defense counsel was, quote, elated by the decision, and his work with Norman was finished. He said there was nothing more he could do mm-hmm. legally. Right. The paper had a large picture of Ethel with the caption, Grateful Mother, and the headline, be- oh, you should have read the writing in this. Ugh, I have to show it to you. And the headline below said, Quiet Gratitude Expressed for Sparing Life of Son. And the article, Ethel said she was, quote, overjoyed, very happy. We were all hopeful the governor would commute the sentence as we sat through the clemency hearing, but no one really knew. I hoped for the best and prayed. Ethel had last seen Norman on December 27th at Sing Sing, where he had been on death row. She told the reporter, quote, he was in good spirits and looked as well as can be expected being indoors all the time. He's regained some weight and said the food is good. The guards have been most kind to Norman, as they have to me. She said she was going to keep on managing the family-owned paint store. Mr. Horton and I built the business together. I know he would want me to continue it with the loyal employees who have stood by since this happened. She also thanked the many people who signed petitions for Norman, those who have helped me with their prayers, and those who have expressed their happiness with the governor's decision, and the many friends who stood by us through our tragedy. I think almost everyone is glad the governor commuted Norman's sentence. And they also mentioned, funny in the uh, article, they mentioned that there's a big picture of, like, a hand-tinted picture of um, Norman, a portrait of him. They don't mention anything about Ray or, like, she doesn't mention Ray or anything. And Norman was transferred to Attica to serve his sentence. 
1967 and 1970, challenges were made to the state Supreme Court about whether his, his confession was voluntary or coerced. Part of it was the sodium pentothal. I think that, you know, later... I mean, they used to give it to people regularly, but I really don't see how a confession made under the influence of drugs is, you know. But also, it can make people very suggestible. Mm -hmm. That's why they don't use it anymore. And we all know how false confessions work now, anyway. But the court said, no, they were voluntary. Yeah. I tried to find out if he was still alive or when he died, but the search uh, an inmate only has people that were committed, I think it was like 1960s sometime so he's not in there i couldn't find i looked for I his obituary i looked everywhere it seems to me like and we must have discussed this before i must have discussed it with mom back when i was living with them and i googled him and i think he died in the early 2000s I think I there was him. another guy with the same name that died in elmira but it wasn't him uh, okay. At least not what I could say. I asked mom what she remembered, and she said that all she remembers is that a lot of people felt sympathy for him, and they didn't know he was gay, obviously, before the trial. But even once they learned it, it didn't... I think people, like, kind of... I think it was common knowledge to people that knew him that his father was a dick to him. Yeah. And people just felt bad for him. Right. And And I think even though they probably didn't condone what he did, I think a lot of people could understand what right. he did. I think it's yeah. interesting that Ethel wasn't considered a suspect at all. I mean, how many people, you know, they wake up and their husband has a knife in their back. I know. And they I know, that's anything. true. Although she could have. They don't really... I mean, I didn't read much... Right. You don't know. We don't right. know. Right. No. Yeah, and, um, and it, it's similar. I'm reading, um, which I had read years ago, A Death in Canaan, about Peter Riley, whose mother was murdered when he was 18 in 1973. Uh, yeah. And he was, like, one of the first, like, famous false confession. Like, the police kept him up for 30 hours. It was oh, a very Jesus. suggestive kid. And it was an obvious... But um, it's funny that the community rallied around him, too. Hmm. Like, they just felt that this 18-year-old kid, after his mother was killed, the police just took him off and nobody could find out where he was. And one of the cops, and he's like, do you think I should get a lawyer? And the cops are like, no, you don't need a lawyer. You just need to tell us what oh, They did read him his rights, and he signed him off. But, but it was similar in that the community it rallied around him and one thing annoying about the book tangent it seems like when i read it years and years ago there were photos i'm reading it on kindle and the author talks a lot about photos nah. and the only photo in the whole fucking book is one of their house and that's it but anyway i'm sorry i digress i but, don't like that you know what's weird is there was either dateline or 48 hours with such a similar storyline yes as this, but uh, it was modern Norman right? Horton. like it was in north that carolina kid? Yes, yes it was modern yes no i no this one i'm thinking of uh, no but the one no, i'm thinking of was york. not north it, it was in, in like new york rochester. it was in new york the kid was in school yeah. in rochester right yes, yes. I read a book it was in North weird. Carolina where the kid did it. But yes. This one I can picture. It was kid, it's so what, drove weird. And the Jeep, right? He drove Same a Jeep. thing. I can't remember what he drove, but he had a car, but he drove but he got home, did it, and come. And went back Yeah, to I think he killed both of them. Or yeah, did he just he kill did. his he father? I don't know. He killed both of them. But he had a more Ugh. dickish. He had a more dickish. Yeah. Oh. 
than Norman yeah. did. He was, it was money involved. And I think wasn't he, it was the old thing where like he was lying about his grades and his dad yes. was going to find out. And, and I don't think Norman was lying. I think no. people knew who was going to flunk out. I think Poor he was guy. just totally stressed out and anxiety ridden and gay yeah. but couldn't tell anybody. And Yeah, I mean, it just was a sad story. And uh, oh. it's good, good for mom for coming up with one. I know. And if anyone from our uh, hometown knows anything more, they can email us yeah. or let us know. Yeah, let us know. Or if we'll, they're mad at us for we'll anything. Put you on the show, yeah. So are we going to do our recommendations? Negative? Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> so we have our negative Nelly watching recommendations. I'll go first. Okay. To, to give you a break from talking. And I guess we should, you know, there's always the hope that we have new listeners. So the way this works is every everything starts out with 10 points and then yes, we have that's right. right, and then we take points away for things. I am doing mine on Trial by Media, the Netflix Ooh. series, and I've watched 4 out of the 6 episodes. I watched them last night and they're each about a different case, and my assumption had been, and I'll get more into this, that it was, because that's what the description of it says, is it's going to be uh, how the media influences, you know, the justice system and how the media influences trials and blah, blah, blah. So I had a very vivid idea of what this was about, and it wasn't. And oh. um, Yeah, yeah. So bad reenactments, and oh, and also I, I want to say too that I think, and I should have looked this up, that it's the kind of thing where different episodes are directed by different people, so there's a slightly different mm. feel to them, kind of like that other one that I had issues with, that everybody knows what I'm talking about. But the executive producers include George Clooney, Jeffrey Tubin, who writes for The New Yorker, who actually appears in one of the episodes. In any case, so I'll get into it, bad reenactments. In the first four episodes, which I watched, there's only one with reenactments, and they're very brief. Like, the, there's one, the Amadou Diallo 41 Shots case. Mm. When you hear the shots, and it shows, like, different people on the street turning, like, they're hearing the shots. But it's the wrong time of year, and the sun's out, so, and he was shot at mm. night. But, but I'm not going to take anything away from that. Okay. I, I'm guessing the next one up is the Big Dan's rape case. And I'm hoping there won't be reenactments. Uh, I may have to come back because of this. But because of when that was, I'm guessing there's going to be less on film. Narrative cliches, because you would assume that it's about how awful the media is, you would think there would be narrative cliches, but there really aren't. So, okay. So, next. Racial gender stereotypes. No, there are no racial gender stereotypes. And I should say, too, that the that the four cases of the four first episodes is it starts with the Jenny Jones show where the guy, his secret crush, ended up being a guy, and then he murdered the guy. Mm, is that a good explanation that. of it? Yeah, so that's the first one. The second one was Bernard Getz. Oh, Jesus. Yes. The third one was Amadou Diallo. And the fourth one was Richard Scrushy, who was the CEO mm. of Health South and was tried on fraud charges in Alabama in the 2000s. So they're all very different. They're all people talking without narration. So the narrative cliches that you get when you have a narrator um, aren't there. 
Next. Lack of good visuals. The visuals are all very good. There's a lot of, because, let's see, Bernard, not Bernard Getz, but the Jenny Jones one and Amadou Diallo were both on court TV. So there are, there's a lot of video from that. Because the media was so hot on all of these, there's tons of video. They do a good job with that. You know, there are, there's a lot of, there's a variety of visuals. There's tons of video and they do great with that. Missing pieces. Here's where we, I'm taking away a point, And this could also be a storytelling issue and I'll get to that too. So trial by media, they never really clarify what media they're talking about. And you assume it's the news media and, like, the Jenny Jones one, I'm watching it, and I know it was, like, in the media a ton. hmm And the whole premise, I thought, of the series was how the media influences public opinion and trials and stuff. But it was mostly about how this had happened, and then it was on Court TV. And Court TV is the same production company that owns the Jenny Jones show. So that might have been the media issue, but they never really nail it down. And there were small holes, like, I would have liked to have known, even though maybe, okay, this isn't the point of the whole thing. The story on that one is that the guy went on the Jenny Jones show, a secret crush was going to be revealed to him. For those of you who weren't watching TV in the 90s, the Jenny Jones show like the Jerry Springer. There were a whole bunch of shows like that. They were basically gotcha shows. They were very salacious. And there was no doubt about what these shows were like. I mean, everybody knew what these shows were like. And so this guy agrees to go on it. And and so he goes on. There's going to be reveal a secret crush. He's told it could be a guy. It could be a girl. He goes on. There's this girl who's a friend of his, a young woman, and a guy who's a friend of his. And it turns out the guy is the secret crush. And he felt embarrassed and humiliated, although he did not indicate that on the show. And then three days later, he went and shot the guy. And there's a lot to it, but one question hanging over my head is, did anyone, like, he knew what the show, like, in some ways he was a victim, he was humiliated on TV, but it's a show that daily humiliates people. Mm-hmm. So did yeah. he not think he was good? Not that he should have been, but... You can say, no, I don't want to be on that show. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So he, and he must have known it wasn't going to be just this fun, hey, look, this person has a crush on you, and it turns out it's the love of your life who has the crush on you, and you're going to ride off into the sunset. There are a lot of issues. So they never addressed that. I mean, there might have been a mention of it here and there. They never addressed the fact on any of the ones that have had court TV that it's a judge who determines if there are going to be cameras in his courtroom. They're like, oh, it was on court TV and it made a circus out of the whole thing, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's not TV that decides if they're going to show it. The judge decides. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. So, in that aspect of it is, so it was the whole first episode, I know I'm kind of going on and on, but the whole first episode, I'm trying to determine, okay, where's the trial by media? Is it because of court TV? And and they really don't show this overwhelming media. I mean, they show, like, talking heads talking about it at the time on TV, but they don't tie any... There's no tie between the outside media influencing anything that's going on. And then at the very end, they show some interview with Jenny Jones that she did back then where she's saying, well, 
I've really learned a lot about how awful the press is. And I'm like, well, watching <laughs> this, I haven't. So that was the first one. And then as it went on, none of these have been, have lived up to this whole trial by media thing. I mean, the Bernie Getz thing it happened in the 80s. I remember it well because he went to Concord, New mm-hmm. Hampshire, and gave himself up to the Concord police. You know, and him being from New York and just being the big thing in New York thought, they would know who he was, and of course they had no fucking idea. So he turned himself in. But as it goes on, it's really more about how people use, not, not just the media, but how people use how other people try to influence. Like, none of these have, have a media influence in anything. Like, in the Bernie Getz one, on one side you have the NRA, on the other side you have Al Sharpton. You know, and the attorneys. And, and I've always said that, you know, when people complain about, like, pre-trial publicity and blah, 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 if the cops, the prosecutors, and the criminal defense lawyers would all shut their pie holes, then there would be no media circus, you know? And so the lawyers and stuff are manipulating things. The Scrooge one, it's all about how his defense lawyers just blatantly manipulated the justice system and the Scrooge guy himself bought, uh, t- started this Christian evangelical TV show while he was waiting <laughs> for trial. <laughs> to, it, it's like they circle around the issue of the media and just never get to it. So that's a big missing piece. So that's a point off? Yes. And what's the next one? <laughs> Inaccuracy anachronism. Um, no. Okay. Storytelling. I'm taking away another point. Um, Ooh. For the same basic thing because I feel like it should have been called something else. I'm not sure what the point is. There's a lot in almost every episode about racism and stuff. There's a lot about the court system being manipulated and stuff. And I'm having trouble grasping what the story is they're trying to tell with these different things because they're just very different. And one of them does have four people telling the same story. Granted, they're all people who are involved in it, but that whole thing. And then she did this, and then it switches to another Mm -hmm. person, and then blah, 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 and then blah, 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 and then blah, blah, blah. And just have one fucking person doing Mm -hmm. it. So I I find the storytelling, it's like good, but four episodes out of six, I have yet to see any trial by media. Hmm. Now, the Big Dance one may be more, because as we know, she was vilified the, the victim was raped on a pool, gang raped on a Ugh. pool table. In a, and I keep picturing her as Jodie Foster, because Jodie Foster played her in the, uh, some movie. And two of them, the Amadou Diallo one, you know, they, they do a lot of court TV blaming. And again, it's like the judge didn't have to let court TV in the courtroom. And why doesn't no somebody... Shit. Why doesn't somebody talk about that? I know. You know? It, and it's funny because... Back to the Jenny Jones one, the defense lawyer was this very famous, it happened in Michigan, so he's this very publicity-hungry, famous, big-case guy who was always giving interviews and shit. Was he the brother of the guy from the NAC? Fiegler? Fiegler? Yes. Yes, Um, he is. Yes, and the thing is, nobody says, if you're going to hire a lawyer like that, your case is going to be in the media because that's what he's all about. That's and right. And, like, Bernie Getz is, like, his lawyer's like, I can't shut the guy up. He's going on every TV show doing all these interviews. And then later, Bernie Getz is like, oh, the 
you know, the media betrayed me. And it's like, the media's, you're just talking to them. They're not your friends, you know. Ugh. So yes. anyway, um, I could go on and on, but, mm-hmm. that, that, but that's a point on. Freshness. Very fresh, yes. None of the cases on it, uh, and then the sixth one is uh, Rod Blavojevich. I can't say his name, but they do approach it in a fresh way, just not the way they imply they're going to approach it. So that's good. Okay, repetition? Nope. And beating the drum? Nope. They could be beating a drum. If they were, if it was about what it was going to be about, and now that I want to see the media bashed because it's such a easy thing to do, but no, they don't beat the drum, so that's an eight. And I do recommend it. I do recommend it. I'm just like, I'm just not sure why it's called trial by media. Okay. Well, I did not do a watching thing because since I've been living with mom and dad, I have to watch TV with mom. (laughs) <laughs> she doesn't seem to like true crime. I well, I could watch. I could watch in my room, but I feel bad for her. I used to watch in my room until Dad would go to bed, and then I would come mm. out and go watch with Mom. So I'm doing a podcast, and the podcast is actually obsessed with abducted in plain sight. It's a four part podcast. It's a very quick listen. They're all probably about half an hour episodes. And it's by Patrick Hines, who does, he's a co host, True Crime Obsessed. And there's a couple other ones he does. So it's him, Sky Borgman, who's the uh, director or the documentary maker, or whatever you want to say, of the show. And it's about the show, which is on Netflix. And it was a documentary before that. It had a different title. I don't know what it was, but it, the, the documentary is Abducted in Plain Sight. And if you have not watched it, oh, it's so good. you did a Negative Nellie's watching on it a couple of years ago. It is, you have to watch it. Yes, you yes, just have yes. to watch it. I can't yes. even, and so I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I would not listen. I'm advising any listener, do not. You right, wouldn't really enjoy it. Yeah, because right. you wouldn't really even enjoy this podcast if you hadn't watched it. They're basically talking with Sky Boyman about the making of it and about things that were left out of the documentary because she had to cut them for Ooh. various reasons and why she had to cut things. So I'm going to start with bad reenactments. No, um, they do play stuff that was from the um you know, like, there's audio. The guy, um, it's about a pedophile and his obsession with this young girl. And he did have, like, these audio diaries. So they play some of that. But there's no reenactments to speak of. So so no points off for that. Narrative cliches, no. It's the opposite. Because <laughs> even though this is, the, the, the documentary is based on, it's just, shit happens. You just are aghast the whole time. So oh, I, I would say there's no cliches. Racial and gender stereotypes? No, uh, not really. They're all white people, Mormons. Lack of good visuals um, because it's a, an audio thing? No, but also they've got a lot of good audio. They mostly have stuff for that's in the documentary. They have a couple things that are not because one of the things about the um, documentary, at some point the director did interview a bunch of either psychiatrists or sociologists, I don't know, psychologists or experts. She decided she didn't want them to have them in the documentary because she explains why. And uh, But she does have some, you know, stuff from them, which is good. Uh, missing pieces, I'm actually taking off a point. Ooh. I wasn't going to... Oh, actually, I was going to and I... I might not, I haven't, I still have about 10 minutes left of the last um, episode, 
and they finally kind of touched on it. So I'm still taking a point off, though, because, and it's almost like a ding, it's actually a ding on the, um, almost on the documentary more than the podcast. But they don't talk about how the Mormon church and mm. the people's Mormon faith played into everything that happened. Which was big. And she does, right before I finish listening, like 10 minutes left, the last episode of this podcast is the uh, director, Sky Borgman, and James Cood, who's her uh, editor, mostly them talking about it. And they do actually bring it up. And she said, well, it was just such a rabbit hole. You know, if you start talking about that, we could do a whole documentary on that. And I kind of understood but I still don't think she explained well enough because I really think you're leaving off a really important part yes. of the whole thing. I agree because so, I, I remember like when I re reviewed it. it but one point is, it just in general, people who are really, really religious, the things you have to believe to be really, yes. really, really religious makes, means that you're people who will believe things that are beyond the realm of believability. And, and beside that, and then the that was one behavior, factor. Right. The parents' behavior and right. the fact that they were afraid that some of their behavior was going to be exposed if they didn't give in to right. his kind of a blackmail. So I mean, you have to... Facets. There were a lot of facets to that. So I'm taking a point off for oh, that. Yeah. And see, anachronisms, no, there really aren't any because they're just talking about this, this you know, right. thing. Uh, storytelling, I'm not going to take off for that, although I'm going to take off for repetition, so no, I'm not going to take off for storytelling. Freshness, yes, it is fresh, even though a lot of people have seen this this um, documentary. I liked It's a great companion if you've seen it, because you're going to have a lot of questions if you watch it, and they do talk about a lot good, of stuff. Good. Yes, you're going to have to listen to it more, because he asks about a lot of stuff that you're interested in. In fact, I, I think they probably could have had more. Um, repetition, I am taking a point off Ooh, for that because wow. even though it's short, a lot of stuff is repeated. It's almost like he does a recap at the beginning of each episode, which I oh, do I not, I, I don't that. think is necessary at all because it's a short, they're short episodes. Oh. You obviously, if you listen to the first one, I mean, you're not going to just no jump recaps, in and listen. People, no recaps and also he says, there aren't commercials in it, but he says coming up they're going to talk about blah blah blah, and it's like you don't need to tell me that they're well, going to they talk do. about this. And so I'm taking off a point for that. Beating the drum, no, uh, they don't really beat the drum. They talk a lot about stuff that we all thought when we were we were watching the the documentary about the parents, right. and the parents have been through the ringer. As far as the documentary and people who have watched it. You know that when you're watching it, you're you're you want to you want to ring the parents' necks. Yes. The yes. Um, director Sky Borgman says that she said there was a lot of anger. Could kind of understand how many people. And I didn't have anger. I was just very. I was almost like right. puzzled by how dumb. Yes. That uh, just dumb and, and, and gullible right. and just like right. and I, I was too. just like can't stress to our listeners enough if they have not watched it it's on netflix abducted in plain yes. sight and i yeah. think it's on some of the other ones amazon I may watch and stuff it. i may watch it again before i listen to the podcast it's just and i don't want to spoil it for anybody but it's just like it's just one of those things you think in the first like half hour you know the story yeah. and then you're just like every 
you're just like, what the hell is going on? I do recommend it. I wish kind of that it was more, but I wish that there would be more podcasts like this about things we've seen. Yeah. And we could do one. That's oh, why but... I like the Dateline ones, like when I'm listening to it with Josh Mankiewicz right now about, um, uh, no, I can't remember, Motive for Murder. Patrick has another one coming up called Obsessed with Disappeared, and they go, Ooh. what they do is watch each episode and talk about it, oh. so, and I've seen a lot of them. Yeah. So. But like when DVDs first came out, I used to love, like I'd watch the movie, then I used to love to, to oh, watch listen the part to the, with the yeah. commentary. Yeah, because sometimes that's more interesting than the movie. Yes, know? a lot of times it is. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, anyways, that was pretty good, well, and maybe yeah, I'll get back to watching that. stuff. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's just, true crime. Yeah. The only thing Mom likes is like that Father Brown or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I know she likes that type of thing, and Call the Midwife, which I started I watching with her. I don't understand why Mom doesn't like true crime because as sweet a person as she is. She has kind of this grisly side, like the Norman Horton thing. And like like when we were little kids at Lullaby, she'd sing us about oh the kid who God. died and all those toys were there hate that dust. And like the story she told us like about the girl who was writing her valedictory speech <laughs> at the branch. <laughs> And there was a storm in the Oh, a tree fell. fell no, it was a tree. Right. A tree fell through the wind. And then the girl that burned when she went back right. in her house to get her new dress. To get her prom dress. And then um, the girl the, who was trying to get crackers over yes. the stove and her dress caught yes. on fire. I mean, we have uh. millions of... These are stories mom would tell us when we were kids. Yes. Because she's Italian. I don't know. But. I don't know. But anyway. I'm sure everyone's got that. So anyways, yes. So there we are. And once again, once apart again. from each other. Yes. But together in spirit. Yes. I always feel like I'm making promises we can't keep, but we're really trying to get out more than one episode a month. We Ugh. just... It's been difficult. I, I, you know, I'm lucky I have a job or three jobs, but I, it's just very time consuming with the corona because I'm a journalists it just seems like there's just so much more to do do you know what you're gonna do for our next show no fucking idea that's good maybe by my next show i'll have the book read i do have some ideas lined up but right now my brain is like just you know what it seems like a lot of people are saying that they're i think it's the stress from this whole thing but a lot of people are having trouble like concentrating on stuff and reading it seems like everyone i know is like oh i can't like concentrate i can't i was trying to read a book and i can't read it's just constant pressure of this thing going on i know know, and we don't know what's happening it affects yeah Every it affects everybody's lives, but anyway, we should probably get going too, right? Okay. I have. I have. Bye, everybody. Yeah, yeah. You've got work to do. No, I was gonna say I was gonna watch the two other episodes of uh, My Media before I go to bed. So well, I'm gonna go watch an episode of This Is Us with Mom. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha ha! I'm gonna watch that show just based on the commercials, and I know there's lots of fans out, and I'm gonna offend people based on the commercials. I, if I had a choice between sticking hot coals up my ass You're and watching that shit. show, I would not watch that show. You would, you would, you would actually watch that show over sticking hot coals up <laughs> I, your I, ass. I guess I would, yeah. Mom Actually, likes everybody, it. Everybody, is every line in that show some, like, trite yes, announcement? Yes, it's See, stupid. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that doesn't matter. And the other thing I would never watch is Council of Dads. Oh, well, that I wouldn't watch. the commercial. No, I would not watch that one. But I guess we should go. And 
Okay. We appreciate people Until listening. next time. And thank you. And maybe we'll get a groovy tube done again sometime. Yeah, right. We we do have to power through. We were in the fifth season of the Brady Bunch. I know. I keep hoping things will somehow. I'm counting on, uh, although I haven't been writing You much. have to finish your f- freaking book before right, you sell it. So I can it. make it big as an author. Yeah. And then I don't have to work three Yeah, jobs. that'll happen. <laughs> you never know. You know what? Our cousin, our cousin plugged your, uh, no, uh, one of our cousins plugged your books on Facebook today, Mom told me. Oh, that's nice. Which cousin? Charlie. Oh, that's nice of him. Our cousin Charlie Rossi, who sells real estate in Virginia. Virginia. Yeah. It it could happen. Yes, it could happen, but the first thing you have to do is finish your book. All right. Your latest book, I should say. She does have books. I do have three. If books. you didn't know, if if you if you've been listening to us and didn't realize that she's an author, <laughs> we never talk about it. <laughs> anyway, okay. Yeah. okay, I know. Well, well anyway. <laughs> okay, with that. Okay, uh, good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye. Okay, bye bye. This took place. In hey, man, your you just went out. Is something going on? With birth. Your phone? I can't hear you. Uh, Elmira, New York. Becky. And mom and Becky. dad were in high school when this Becky. happened. Uh, Becky. Becky. Can you hear me? What? You're, can you what? hear me? Can you hear me? Uh, what? Can you hear yes! me? Yes! You I can going, hear you. You were going. Yes. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yes. And they had a lot of different diagnoses from narcissism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the COVID is finally kicking in. <laughs> they had. <laughs> they. <laughs>